Welcome to episode 166 of the Win 6 podcast. I'm your host, Adam McGee. And joining me this week, it's not Jordan Tresky. Instead, I've got a blast from the past. Someone who all of you longtime listeners will be more than familiar with. Big time Ty Windish makes his return to the podcast. Hello, Ty. Hello, Adam. Big time, Ty. Is glad to be back. Glad to be one of the the few, the proud, the guests on the Winning Six podcast. Uh, just excited, excited to talk Bucks basketball with you. Something that you know, since my sort of resurgence into the the darkness and less tweeting and stuff, has been all too rare. Yeah, it's it's good to have you on to hear your thoughts. You might have some fresh opinions some fresh takes that we haven't heard before because it's been a while and don't worry everyone jordan is fine jordan will be back sometime very soon he's having some internet problems at the moment which means you haven't seen a lot of his tweets that you normally would all of his jokes and he's not here on this occasion but we will soldier on without him it's been a good week for the books facing a pretty important week after a really disappointing loss on the road to the utah jazz last saturday the Bucks have come in and beaten the Sacramento Kings twice, the Portland Trailblazers. And as we come into this, they've just crossed what's, I guess, effectively the quarter season mark and are at a season high three games above 500 with a record of 12 and 9. As a result, what we're going to do this week, we will kind of briefly look at one of the developments that's come out of the last week and how it might continue, whether it can moving forward. But we're also going to zoom out and take a take a look at where things stand for the books, how they've performed in certain areas, what the most interesting topics surrounding the team are as they reach that quarter mark of the year. To begin, though, one of the most notable trends to come out of the three-game win streak that the books are currently on from those two wins against the Sacramento Kings and the win against the Portland Trailblazers is that there seems to be a real kind of progression, or there's been a jump made between the book's three most important players. The big three of Yansa Tsukumpo, Eric Bledsoe, Chris Middleton, have all averaged over 20 points per game for their last three games, have all shot over 50% from the field. They have combined for over 70 points a game, over 14, uh, I guess you're close to 16 rebounds, but 12 assists. Eight steals. There's stuff in the stat sheet, and they're really driving the books on to victory. There's obviously been a bit of a kind of betting in period, a time of adjustment since Eric Bledsoe has arrived. And although that still continues to be an issue, maybe further down the rotation, the last three games have shown some real signs that those three guys are working out how to best mesh together within the team and what they need to give to get the best results for the Milwaukee Bucks. Ty, my question for you is. Are you buying what they're doing as something that's sustainable, something we can continue to see moving forward? Or is it more of, you know, playing the Kings twice? They've had a nice spell, a chance to pad their stats out a little bit. And although there are definite positives as a group, this may just be asking too much for them in the, the bigger picture, the longer term. If the Bucks' big three were a stock... I would Jordan belt for the game and secretly buy all of it before it's even available. I'm all the way in on this new look big three. This is exactly what, you know, we sort of the best case. And I wouldn't say 
you know, he's played as well as could be envisioned, but this is about the best case scenario Bucks writers slash fans slash whatever hoped for when talking about acquiring Eric Bledsoe. He makes everyone's life easier. Giannis's life is already pretty easy on the basketball floor. My man is just impossibly good. Um, on the recent, I don't know if you listened to the Bill Simmons pod with Steve Kerr. I think it was part two. It was just a big mailbag where Bill asked Steve a bunch of questions that just people sent in. And one of them was, if any one player was an alien, who would it be? Steve Kerr and Bill Simmons both agreed it's Giannis. He might actually be an alien. Steve Kerr said, we might have to investigate this a little bit and see if that's the reason he keeps torching us. Uh, and the league, I think, is what he meant by us, not just the Warriors in, in, in their own thing. But anyway, um, Bledsoe makes Middleton's life so much easier. Bledsoe makes Malcolm Brogdon's life so much easier. Tony Snell who has been quiet lately. His efficiency is off the charts. Shooting True shooting percentage is a nice 69.5. My man is shooting somewhere between 60 and 70% on two-pointers right now on less than three per game. Like He is able to pick his spots to the umpteenth degree. That stuff is all easier when you have someone commanding attention on, on both ends, really, but on offense as much as Eric Bledsoe is. So, I mean, I think that part of the big three, just the fact that, you know, teams have to respect all three of these guys. I mean, obviously you respect Giannis the most and probably Bledsoe. And then, oh, look, now Chris Middleton's doing stuff too. That just seems sustainable. This is how we've seen teams win a lot of games in the NBA. I mean, you can look at any of the best teams in the league. You know, the Celtics, even without Hayward, they still have Kyrie Irving and Al Horford, who are both fantastic. And they are, out of the top four teams probably in the league, they are the least reliant on stars. And this is still a team where, when healthy, they have Kyrie Irving, Gordon Hayward, and Al Horford. Still, you look at the Warriors, obviously, we don't even have to go into it. They have four guys who are in the top 20 in the league. The Rockets right now, you have to deal with James Harden and Chris Paul. The Cavaliers, obviously, Kevin Love, LeBron, and when he comes back, Isaiah Thomas. This is how teams operate. One guy by himself typically is not going to do that well anymore. The Bucks, luckily, were able to put themselves in a position to have not one, not two when healthy, potentially three all-star caliber-ish in the East players around Giannis once Jabari comes back. The, for now, let's just ignore that. The big three, Bledsoe, Middleton, Giannis, it seems sustainable. Most teams, especially in the East, don't have this kind of top-end firepower to where Chris Middleton is their third best player. That is a recipe for success. That's just how we've seen the league evolve. I think for a long time, one of the main topics of, topics of discussion that people like us and I guess, wider around the league from more national perspective anytime they'd come to talk with the books. What have is, you know, the books need to get help. And primarily that would be, you know, they need to get help for Yanis because he is the best player. He's kind of a standout in the NBA as a whole. But I think the, the thing that you've kind of pointed there in some of those examples even is, you know, it's not necessarily just about one guy. No matter how good that guy is, doesn't matter if it's LeBron James, Kyrie Irving, if it's Giannis, you still need to put the right pieces around them. And I, I think interestingly, one of the players who seems to have benefited most from Bledsoe's arrival is Chris Middleton. I mean, Giannis is out here being Giannis, basically. I think you can put any players on the floor with him, and at this point, this is what you're going to get. It's, it's not really about making Giannis better. Giannis is going to do what he does, and no matter how easy or difficult you make it for him, he's probably going to find a way to go and get his. After a really kind of slow and tough start to the season where he was picking up a lot of the offensive load, if not even in scoring because he was struggling in that regard, in just in terms of playmaking and having to be on every single possession and not having to just be on, but to be the guy drawing the most attention, all of a sudden Middleton is back into a role that he's had more experience in the past. If Jabari Parker was healthy, Middleton would often find himself as like an afterthought, nearly, for opposing teams. The third option, a guy who, you know, might get the space. I think in getting the best out of Chris Middleton, like Chris Middleton, if we really simplify it, and it is simplifying, it's being a little unfair to him, he can do more, but he is a supercharged Tony Snell. Maybe a supercharged combination of Tony Snell and Malcolm Brogdon. That will get you Chris Middleton. It's like if you look at what those guys have been able to get as a part of this books team, the goal for the books really for a long time should have been, well, how do we just kind of get enough talent around the roster where Chris can have the freedom that those other guys have? 
I think we're seeing that again at the moment, and we're seeing big, big improvements in terms of not just his shooting, but his overall performances. He's not having to initiate play. That's going to Eric Bledsoe. He's more than capable of doing it. He can still kind of, if the books need him to go make a play, he has the option to do that. But he's getting more of the kind of high-quality looks you'd want to see him get in the corners, out on the perimeter as well. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I mean, I think when you look at it, sort of, it's it's smart, and this is what Brad Stevens, I know, and the Celtics do, is to sort of split the the game into three positions: your your initiators, your your creators, your wings, and your big men. That's that's a good way to look at it. The Bucks, obviously, for big men, it's it's Henson and Don. For your shot creators, it's sort of Bledsoe and Giannis. And then Middleton's kind of in between a, a creator and a wing. I think the Bucks are at his best when he's a wing first, because I, I think there's this misconception that like if you're a secondary or a tertiary ball handler, that means that every couple possessions you bring the ball up and initiate offense. That's not always the case. Some of the best wing players who who can sort of create a shot do it. You know, they catch a pass at the three point line after one of the other creators. In this case, your Bledsoe or Giannis makes some space for them. Then instead of Chris Middleton coming up against a set defense and someone committed to guarding him, someone is running to get back to him. He's got some space. He can shoot if he's open. He can dribble around that guy. He can dribble and then pass. He can pass right away. If if you can make those kind of reads quickly and, and well, that's how you end up with a really good offense in the modern NBA. You need to have smart wing players who know how to use space. The Bucks have that. Like you said, Chris Middleton's better than just doing that, but he's a supercharged wing player who, when it, the more of those position he's in, positions he's in, the better the Bucks will look because that's something he can certainly play make well enough out of those reads. Maybe he's not a guy you want bringing up the ball all the time and and starting off against a set defense. That's not his strong suit. That ends up with a lot of jacked, contested long twos, which make me sick sometimes shouts to Chris Middleton and his, his perennial ticket on the tough shot express. But I, I think the more that Bledsoe and Giannis open space for him, then kick him the ball. He's going to look great in those situations. Cause you know, a team's third best defender or a, an unset defense is just no match for Chris Middleton. Right. And I think we often kind of will look at it from that angle because it is a, it's an offensive first league, right? The NBA at this point is completely predicated on offense the best defensive teams may be the ones who will go and win it but it's empty to kind of say oh you know we're building on defense defense wins championships because it might be the difference at the end of the day but to get into the championship picture your offense has to be on pace with a lot of your rivals that leaves the defensive side is a little bit underlooked and generally underlooked when it comes to kind of talking about some of the best duos and trios and I guess even beyond that and super teams that now dominate the NBA. But it's really worth pointing out for this group in particular, you know, these are three really, really good defensive players who when they lock in can make it very difficult for opposing teams. And that's not always all that common in terms of a big tree style kind of players. But that could be a big difference maker for this grouping as the season goes on. Like in the past week, we've seen them hit their stride offensively. That's important because at their best defensively, they're going to cause a lot of teams problems that aren't necessarily associated with, you know, best three players often and on plenty of other teams around the NBA. You know, some one of those guys might have to come out because he's, you know, a little bit of a liability defensively. When things really get tough, he comes out and more of a just defensive specialist will come in to relieve his minutes. The books don't have that problem. They can have those three guys on the floor at any time, no matter the situation. I think that's that's a real positive as well, because in terms of roster construction, it's easy not to have that kind of flexibility. Yeah, and I think really the Bucks are lucky. It goes even farther than those three. Obviously, those are the most important when you look at you know crafting your best clutch lineups or whatever. But their best six players this season and their their six most played in terms of minutes per game are all good defenders. It starts with those three. But then you also have John Henson, the starting center, who is a good defensive center. You have your and your first guy off the bench, Malcolm Brogdon, who is a very good defender. He's super long. And then in addition, Tony Snell is the other guy in the starting lineup, and he's a good defender as well. So you look at most of their lineups, unless they cough, inexplicably cough, start playing Gary Payton 2 as a starter or doing a bunch of other weird things. Let, let me rephrase. They have the ability, theoretically, to have lineups that almost always have at most one, maybe two players who are, are, are below average defensively. I mean, that's very, 
that's a powerful thing to be able to do. I mean, you can throw wings, and obviously DeAndre Liggins lurking in the shadows. He's one of the best defenders maybe in the league. He's tremendous. His offensive liabilities are obvious, but there's so many good, rangy defenders on this team. I mean, I think really the more they can make transition happen, the better for the Bucs, obviously the better for any team, but especially the Bucs with Giannis. Um, this is a team that should be a top defensive team just with the personnel they have. And like you said, they don't have to, I mean, we'll see what happens when Jabari gets back, but for now they don't have to play anyone who's not good defensively more than spot minutes. They, they have the, the ability to cover up all of those holes. Okay. Let's move it along uh, from that big tree. I mean, they are going to be one of those important elements for the book's success in the season overall. But we're going to look at some of kind of some of the other topics that are worth talking about as we reach this quarter point of the season. We just kind of go past it. And where we're going to start out with is maybe the position that's undergone the most drastic change since the start of the season. And that is the center spot. Having started the year with Tom Maker in the starting lineup, Greg Monroe as kind of your go-to de facto guy in the second unit um, for kind of a featured offensive role as well as just minutes as a big guy. John Henson has now emerged as the starter, is playing really, really well. And the whole shape of the center rotation, and I guess the Bucks' future center, has kind of been turned upside down within the space of 21 games, which is kind of interesting. It's something to talk about. How do you feel about the way the books are set and how they're looking at center at this point? Well, much like the, the two players that make up Milwaukee's center rotation are themselves, the, it's, it's thin. It's a thin rotation. I mean, you have John Henson, who's been terrific, and hopefully that, that will continue on, and really it's going to be vital that that continues on. But after that, you have Thon Maker, who I believe – Tan McCurr is the actual pronunciation. I don't think we're ever going to get there as, as, a, as a largely American NBA viewing audience. Well, it's worth going there because there are, like, if he comes up on the low post, Zach Lowe really kind of goes to... He tries. Right. I don't. And that's not just kind of, I'm not trying. The reason I don't, the reason, say, Jim Paschke, Marcus Johnson don't is Tan himself said he would rather if it was Ton Maker. His name is actually Ton McCurr, but he said he feels it works better, it's easier for everyone in, in the US, and it's just probably better overall that he would prepare, prefer in this context if it was Ton Maker. So, I mean, that's something I know Jordan and I discussed in this podcast way, way back when that came out, which was in the Kevin Arnovitz piece last season, I want to say, or the was Howard Beck. Arnovitz, or I think it was Beck. It was probably Beck for Bleach Report. Um, but Ton himself kind of clarified that as saying, I'd, I'd prefer if it's Ton Maker. Yeah, it is technically Ton McCurr. I know the argument for that is people say, oh, well, he shouldn't have to make an exception, so just go with the right way. But hey, if everyone is going to know him generally and refer to him as Ton Maker and he wants that, I'm going to stick with that. Also, I mean, what happens to Giannis's name on a daily basis, both first and last? <laughs> First name to people. All right, I get it. If you can't say Adetokounmpo, I understand. I really don't because it's not that difficult if you practice like four times. Adetokounmpo. But Giannis, it's not Giannis. It's never been Giannis. Please. He's one of the best five players in the league. Easily. Giannis. Sorry. Center rotation. The center rotation uh, is then uh, Joel Balomboy is about to run out of NBA minutes, which is not a sentence I ever expected to say before this season. Obviously, the Greg Monroe tra trade is the reason why, more commonly known as the Eric Bledsoe trade. But for this purpose, it's the Greg Monroe trade. Um, there's no reliable bench option on the Bucks right now. Thon is there. Uh, he's, is he reliable? Maybe. Uh, some lineups with him are good, mostly the ones that are all the starters in him. Some lineups with him are bad. He's just not all that consistent yet, which is to be expected from a 20-year-old who has almost no professional basketball experience that's just what happens uh he's shown a lot of flashes that he's going to be very good someday which is good but for this team in the playoff hunt it might be beneficial to have someone else there as well especially because you know they this is like if henson misses five games then you're looking at Thon and joel balumboy are playing 48 minutes at center unless you go Giannis at center which it never happens unless there's an actual catastrophe. So it's it's a little bit of a, a a risky situation right now, I would say. Although it's it's confusing because I haven't been 
very dissatisfied. I mean, I've been very satisfied with John Henson. I wouldn't say I've been dissatisfied with Thon Maker. It's just the nature of who he is and how young he is leaves the team wanting at that position. Right. Well, to talk about Henson for a moment, just to kind of highlight, because I think first of all, we're probably best to start there and say, okay, well, what are the books getting at center? It's it's very different to what they have got traditionally. It's kind of enough that it makes it strange. That there still seems to be just this ultimate desire to constantly upgrade center position. I know that's a conversation that's been ongoing within the books community for a long time. But right now, John Henson is the leader on the team in terms of net rating of players not named Eric Bledsoe. So guys who've been there for the whole season, he has a 9.9 net rating, offensive rating of a 111.4, defensive rating of 101.6. All three of those are really, really excellent marks. Kind of even going beyond that, I mean, he's averaging a double-double per 36 minutes. He's at 7.4 points, 6.9 rebounds per game. Uh, add in 1.6 blocks. Also add in 1.5 assists, which is kind of an interesting development. I think maybe that's just a result of having better players around him to pass it to. You don't necessarily associate John Henson with being a passer at all, but he has shown some nice flashes in that regard. He's having his best passing season since his second year in the league, which was comfortably his career year overall. I mean, he's just doing everything you'd want a book center to do, and maybe even a little bit more. It's kind of the nature of this team, where... If your best players are going to be Yanis, and now you have Bledsoe, you have Chris Middleton, even kind of going a little deeper in your your rotation, you're going to have Malcolm Brogdon, you're going to have Tony Snell, Jabari comes back, you've got Jabari. Center is not going to be where you're going to have your best players. You just can't have a top-class center. It's not really possible in terms of the cap. If you were to make it possible, you're probably making a bad move because you're allocating funds to a part of your roster where maybe they shouldn't be going. You've got plenty of guys at those other positions where you should be investing your money. And with that, I mean, everything's going pretty well for Henson. At center, I guess the thing for books fans can always be, we could rebound better. We could do with a more dominant rebounder. That's true. Henson isn't rebounding bad, though, at the moment. Like He's, he's holding his own on that end. And there's always going to be kind of somewhere where most teams are giving up something. For the books, if it's rebounding, they're not going to be alone in that. There are plenty of teams and plenty of good teams in the NBA who don't kind of specialize in locking in on the boards. So that isn't really an issue. Ton behind that, I mean, he's kind of giving you what you expect for the most part, maybe a little bit less than we would have hoped for overall. But there are brief flashes and then he has lapses too. That's the big problem, really. They need they need a third big guy. Uh, because, I mean, you mentioned there, you don't want a scenario where it's Ton and Joe Bonboy splitting 48 minutes. Like, that really isn't going to be an option because Bonboy is going to be out of days on this two-way soon. So it's just a matter of time before this team has to acquire a center. It's just would make more sense and is much more likely that it's going to be a kind of second string or third string center that's going to come into the mix. Yeah, I mean, I just think... Everyone wants a star at all times. Uh, everyone thinks that uh, a second-round pick protected 40 through 55 and Delhi and Mirza is going to get you DeAndre Jordan and it's not happening, or Mark Gasol, which truthfully, I, I don't know any situation. I want the Bucks to acquire Mark Gasol and his like 30 million when he's 35 three years from now. Like That's just that's a team-killing move, even if they got him for almost nothing. Um and, and look, I like I like Marcus a lot. Shout out to Marcus Sol, but he's that's not a tradable contract for the Bucks right now. Um, it, it's like adding someone who could quietly come in and reinforce the depth and let the G League guys actually play in the G League on Jordan Brady standout Wisconsin herd would be good. Um, I, there's a couple guys who I have my eye on around the league who just don't play for whatever reason. I really like Kyle Quinn in New York. I think he's tremendous. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I like Jaleel Okafor, but he might be almost free at this point because the Sixers are just adamantly not going to play him, which I can't remember ever knowing as much about disagreements with a team and a, and a, and a player, especially not that consequential of a player. Like It feels like most of the time you just don't play the guy, and that's the end of it. The Sixers and... Okafor, I mean, publicly going back and forth, it's very strange and awkward, and I have to imagine they would love to move on from him. Um, 
Nerlens would be great. I don't think he can be traded this season. I think since it's a one-year deal, it's not possible under the cap. I'm not positive about that. Either that or there's a restriction until like January when he can be. But that, that's another weird one where they're like, yeah, just don't play. Don't worry about it. Just don't, we're just not going to play you. And like he's clearly better than whoever they're playing at center. But I digress. Um, it would be nice to watch the Bucks pick up someone like that, a very by-low candidate, even if they couldn't keep him after this season due to having to pay them, uh, just to have a, a real – third big man even if he ended up being the second in the rotation are you confident that john henson can keep up his current level so that if injuries don't become a problem they're at least not going to be exposed in terms of what they're getting at the starting spot at center yeah i actually am surprisingly enough i've been a john henson guy for years and i sort of soured on him recently and I'm, I'm glad that they didn't end up dumping him especially if it would have taken attaching something just to get rid of him um he's always been pretty athletic for a big guy he's always had the hook shot he's always been I, I won't say he's always been active defensively I'll say when he has been active defensively I've liked what I've seen from him especially with the blocks um the the problem has been just really I, I think a lot of times either he gets a little a little off for some reason in, in his mental game but I think just like we talked about earlier, what Bledsoe does for everyone, it helps John Henson as well. Like this is the most talented Bucks team he's gotten to play on, and it just makes it so much easier for everyone. I mean, if you look at like I don't know if Javale McGee is in the league if he's not on the Warriors right now, and he looks like sometimes he looks phenomenal there. Well, it's pretty easy to to get to the rim and and dunk the ball when Kevin Durant and Steph Curry are spacing the floor for you. Obviously, the Bucks aren't that good around John Henson, but. You know, with defenses worrying about Eric Bledsoe and Giannis and Chris Middleton and Malcolm Brogdon, all of a sudden it's it's a lot easier for John Henson to, when he does get the ball, make something happen because no one's really focused on him on, on that or on either end. Okay, so things are okay at the center spot at the moment. Hopefully that will continue going forward. They could do with maybe just some reinforcements, at least even at the back end, to just strengthen their hand in that regard. Let's move it on to an area, though, that was a strength of the books to start the season. And since the, the Bledsoe trade has kind of fallen off pretty notably, uh, Jordan and I have talked about this on previous episodes, and I wrote about it during the week. But uh, I guess one of the more notable trends since Bledsoe's arrival has been the drop-off in Milwaukee shooting overall. The books having built up this reputation for having terrible spacing, and rightfully so, they built up that reputation and not being able to shoot the tree ball, they, they made a big kind of stride forward in that regard last year, became a much better shooting team. And to start the season, it had carried over and was looking even more improved. They were looking like one of the better shooting teams in the NBA. As it stands, you could look at things and kind of be fooled into thinking, oh, well, they still are. The books are third in the NBA in terms of field goal percentage at 48%. They are sixth in the NBA through shooting percentage. Eight in the NBA in effective field goal percentage. Where the problem comes in, though, is their three-point numbers have fallen off, fallen off very, very significantly. Having been kind of a top 10, even within range of going into the top five for the bulk of all of their time prior to Bledsoe's acquisition, they have now dropped off on the season overall to be the 16th team in terms of three-point percentage, at 36.2%. And even more alarmingly, they are 26th in three-point attempts per game at 24.6. Now, there's obvious kind of difficulties in adding a player like Bledsoe because he's not the best three-point shooter. I mean, that's a given. I mean, you're adding him to a team that also includes Giannis, that also includes John Henson as players who aren't going to obviously be spacing the floor. You're going to have difficulty. But if we're to go from the date he was acquired to now, the books are 29th in the NBA in three-point percentage in that span, 32.1%. And they're 29th in attempts at 22.1%, or 22.1 per game, I should say. Is this something they're going to work their way out of? Is this just an adjustment for Milwaukee's better shooters? Kind of a challenge in getting guys to bed in? Maybe even a result of Mirza Toledovic, Matthew Delvadova, both missing some time as well and depleting kind of the depths of your, your three-point shooting options. Or is this something that we can expect to see progressively get worse as the year goes on? 
I mean, it's it's a complicated issue. I mean, obviously having Mount Mirza out for a while, a guy had been erupting all season. He's like forty five percent from three. So uh, shouts to Jordan Tresky. But uh, so he's got to uh, when him coming back will help. I think you know it sort of reminds me almost of the twenty fifteen sixteen Bucks who they tried to trot out a starting five with almost no shooting and it didn't work. Except the differences now, I think, are are important. You know. Eric Bledsoe is everything that Michael Carter Williams like was projected to ever be able to be and more like that's the kind of the player he is to a certain degree. I think he shoots better than MCW does. Probably he's been rough with the bucks so far, but over his time as a starter, he's been around a league average shooter on not that many attempts. Uh, he's better defensively, better passer, much better driver. Obviously he's, he's what MCW was supposed to be a few years after getting MCW. I think that helps. I think, you know, Giannis is flirting with a three-point shot. His percentage is down right now, but if you look a week or two ago, it suddenly looked like Giannis had a respectable shot. I mean, he's never going to pull up 10 times from three in a game. But it doesn't really matter, which is something we've covered plenty here. Like, who cares if he develops a shot? Um, but I, I, I don't mind him taking shots if the situation is right. And that's the same I feel about Bledsoe, where I'd rather have these guys pulling when they're pretty open than not doing that. Because I think a, a missed three-pointer is not good, but I think just watching a guy think about shooting and then not shooting and he just kind of dribbles and I, it just it just kills the flow. It, I, maybe even more than a mystery, which mathematically I'm sure is not true, obviously, but uh, it just it it just like bogs down everything and it makes the offense look weird. I mean, right now, even if the percentages aren't great, the Bucks at any time are going to have at least four guys, most likely. Who are who will pull up from three? Giannis is the most hesitant. Again, everything else he does is so good it doesn't matter that he's that. So I, I think the percentage will go up a little bit, especially as Bledsoe kind of gets back. And uh, I believe Chris Middleton's a little lower than average. Don started out the year kind of dry from three, or he is right now. I, I think it'll go up a little bit, but I think just the the way that they play now, you know, it's still it's always going to be important to shoot threes. But with Bledsoe and Giannis and Henson, it's not as important as long as the other guys can keep spacing the floor for them. I, I agree with the kind of the need for Giannis and Bledsoe to, to keep shooting, but I do think the I'd be a little bit wary just of when they're picking those moments. I think this is something that as the team spends more time together and particularly with Bledsoe still getting integrated into it, they might get a better feel for, but I, I think some of the problems so far have maybe come from the moments when Bledsoe, chooses to pull up and take those shots like there are definitely occasions where him doing that is taking away from possessions where prior to his arrival malcolm brogdon tony snell would have been finishing the possession with shots like that like through his 11 games with the team averaging 30.4 minutes per game which is less than tony snell pretty much identical to malcolm brogdon he's attempting more three-pointers than both of those guys He's at 4.2 per game. Brogdon at 3.8, Snell 3.6. That's not a great trend. You want Bledsoe to take some shots, absolutely. Keep the defense honest. And he is capable of hitting them when he gets confident, when he gets hot. But I think you want to make sure it's not a it's not in a play where, you know, an extra pass or two couldn't lead to a better shot for a better shooter. And if anything, I think it would be better if they can get to a point where the offense moves with a much better flow, much better rhythm overall, so that when the ball is getting to Yanis or it's getting to Bledsoe, and it is a time where they should shoot the tree to keep the defense honest, that you're talking about catch and shoot, or you're talking about relatively open shots, that it's not like you're taking something out of the offense or kind of even remotely settling for something or just trying to make a point with something, that when you're getting those shots, they're the best shots. And there's definitely nothing wrong with it kind of incorporating Yanis and Bledsoe trees into your offense as in let's work to create a Bledsoe tree let's work to create a Yanis tree I think that may be the best approach for the books to to kind of pursue with that going forward in order to to just find the best balance overall the pull-up game can be very good it can be very very useful it's something the books haven't had a lot of over the years but really, it's only Chris Middleton and Malcolm Brogdon who are adept at that kind of shot right now. The other guys, it's it's a little surprising if they're pulling it off, if they're successfully managing to to knock down those shots. So I think kind of a 
a healthier mix. It's like, what kind of shots do you want Eric Bledsoe and Giannis to take from behind the line? They're going to take some, so let's work on exactly how you kind of work them in. The Brogdon-Snell dynamic. Malcolm Brogdon has kind of spoken publicly about how the, the lineup change did disrupt his game. It knocked his confidence a little bit, even though that wasn't obviously the, the intended effect from, from the book's point of view. Are you confident that both of those guys can continue and kind of maintain the high standards they've had so far with the changes in role? Snell, it's probably easier to see him stick with that. I mean, uh, he may have dropped off slightly after Saturday's game to the Kings where he struggled a little bit, but he was the NBA's three-point leader. He was kind of, he was definitely top 10, if not even higher in true shooting percentage. Like, are we are we expecting Brogdon maybe more than Snell to be able to maintain that when he's in a second unit role asked to do a little bit more in terms of going and getting his own offense? Yeah, I, I think Tony Snell is going to be fine forever. I mean, he's one of my favorite bucks ever since they got him. He's just awesome. Like, he's he's going to be there to do whatever the team needs him to do. I, I could not envision a scenario where Tony Snell is complaining about his minutes or something or his shots or anything like that. It's just not going to happen. Um, Brogdon, I think, it's a it's an adjustment for him, which he's had to make a lot of adjustments early in his career. But, I mean, in his, in his rookie year last season, he uh, was one of the best highlights of the bench for a long time before he got the starting role, him and Greg Monroe. So I think what will be important is seeing if he can develop that sort of chemistry again with someone else on the bench. And I don't know who it would be. That's the kind of tricky part with Greg Monroe being gone now. But I, I think he'll settle into his role eventually. I think he should be playing a good amount with guys like Giannis and even Eric Bledsoe because obviously Brodin could play the two. He could probably play the three. I don't know what two guards you'd want next to him, but he's he's versatile enough to do those things. I, I think he shouldn't just be looked at as a bench guard. Like This isn't Jamal Crawford. He can do more than that. He can slot in next to starters as well, but I think the challenge for him is going to be figuring out in the same game he'll have to go from right now I'm almost the lead dog. I'm the bench guy. I got to keep – I got to take some shots. I got to make some offense – going from maybe near the end of the game when he's in there next to Chris Middleton and, and Giannis or and Bla- Eric Bledsoe, and they're like, all right, I have to switch up a little. I have to defer a little bit more, just focus on defense. He's a very smart player. His mind always seems like it's in the right place. I think he's taken this as gracefully as possible. Uh, I think he will be able to adapt soon enough. I mean, I think uh, the Bucks have had a little bit of success with sort of bringing a guy who should be a starter or was a starter and saying, we need you in this role. It went very well for Greg Monroe. I think being going well for Malcolm Brogdon, but it makes sense that he's taking a, 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 little, a little bit here to sort of figure out how exactly to play right now. Okay, before we look at how the books are kind of comparing teams around the NBA in terms of how they're meeting or measuring up to expectations that we would have had or were generally held for, for before the season, it's probably worth just running through. I mean, in spite of the ups and downs of all the various things that have happened, I mean, this has been an eventful 21 games, including the trade, everything else that's got into it for the books. They are really kind of right around, right around probably where they should have been at a minimum. They definitely have the talent that you could make a really strong case that, you know, this team could be multiple games better. But right now, they're kind of, after a good week, they're at least at a point where you could say, okay, that is the very minimum of expectations. They're meeting those. Offensive rating for the season overall, in spite of kind of ups and downs, and the offense with the spacing troubles has fallen off since Eric Bledsoe arrived. The last week has helped in that regard, though. They're up to 105.7, which is 11th in the NBA. Defensive rating, in spite of all of the problems defensively, and there are plenty, they're still there. They have improved since Bledsoe's arrival, and they're now 105.2, which is 16th in the NBA, around an average defense. Overall, that has them completely average in terms of net rating at 15th as well. Finally, that number has crossed over into a positive at 0.5. Like, I think for, for everything that's happened, and it's hard at times for us to kind of remember because we're so into every detail and the ups and downs, that might come with a book season more than any other franchise in the NBA. Things are okay right now. We can easily kind of get to a place where the books can kick on from here, and some of the issues that really dominated early parts of the season can be forgotten about. They're not going to go away, but this team has the talent to mask over a lot of them and have a really good season. 
And right now, they're set up in a good spot for that. On that note, let's take a look at kind of, not, not as much the wider NBA as the Eastern Conference. The Bucs are 12-9, and nine, they're 6th in the NBA, half a game back at the Sixers, one and a half games back at the Pistons, two games back at the Raptors. Above them, I mean, Celtics, Cavs, Raptors were all kind of expected to be in the mix. Wizards, probably similarly with the Bucs for your looking home court seeding. Pistons and 76ers, both exceeding expectations, both playing well. When you look at the standings, I mean, you look at where the books are at right now, though. How do you feel for the season going forward? Do you think it's realistic that they can still kind of push into that upper echelon, challenge and maybe get home court? Or is it going to be kind of looking to maintain and stay around the six seed like they were last year? I mean, I would I would think that they should still look at home court as a goal at this point, honestly. I mean... The two teams ahead of them, the Bucks for that right now, are the Detroit Pistons and the 76ers, as you just said. Detroit's good. And shout out to Detroit and Stan Van Gundy for sort of figuring out how to best use Andre Drummond. They look really good, but like you just look at them and you look at the Bucks roster and you go, well, the, I mean, the Bucks are the better team. You know, maybe they're not the better coach team. They almost certainly aren't, but they're the better team talent wise. The 76ers have some standout young players, but one thing we've just seen with young players as seasons go on, they tend to not always be as good as they were when they started. Ben Simmons is terrific. He might be an all-star this year. He might hit a rookie wall at some point. Joel Embiid, who's technically no longer a rookie, he could hit a, a rookie wall at some point too. He's played 30-some games in his first season. So it's it's not unrealistic to expect that team to run into some difficulties, especially if anyone gets banged up because they really rely on a couple of very good players to keep them where they are now. And, you know, they, they deserve credit. They won a lot of games. They, they fought hard to do that. I just don't know if that'll hold up. You look at the Bucks; they're very talented, as we went over with the big three already. So I, I think it should be possible that Milwaukee can overtake Detroit and Philadelphia. The Raptors might stay better. I don't think they're the better team overall, but I think Toronto really knows how to win ball games. They're getting a lot of contributions from a lot of young guys, which is huge for them, especially because Lowry started the year terrible. DeRozan just keeps doing DeRozan things. Um, the Wizards are the other team to watch in terms of fighting for three or four. Right now, without John Wall, it's likely that they still won't look great for another week or two while he's hurt. When he comes back, they will likely go on some sort of a run because they, they have a lot of talent. But again, the Wizards are another one of those teams where they're so incredibly top-heavy. I mean, obviously, like an injury to your best player is going to hurt any team. The Wizards' depth is terrible. If it wasn't for Tomas Sedaransky balling out more than he ever has in the NBA right now, the Wizards would be looking at the worst point guard rotation in the league with Wall injured because it's Sadaransky and Tim Frazier, and that's it. Their bench is bad. Any injury to this team is terrible. And really what the, what works against them is Jan Mahimi not being good. If that $16 million was going to a real bench player or two, it'd be a lot better, but it's not Oh well. Um, obviously, the Celtics and Cavs are going to be one and two. We all expected that. That was last year. Even without, even with both of those teams missing one of their, either their second or third best player and Isaiah Thomas and Gordon Hayward, they're still better than the rest of the East. That's just how it is right now. The Celtics have the, probably the best coach in the NBA. Their system is impeccable. It's making everyone look a lot better, and their wing stable is just ridiculous. The Cavs have LeBron, and that's all it takes to be one of the best teams in the East, as we've seen over the last decade plus. So those are the top two. You're not going to get a one or two seed unless the Cavs implode again, which maybe. Um, but three or four should be in sight because you look at the rest of the teams besides those two. Are any of them that much better than the Bucks? I, I don't think talent-wise they are. I, I don't think they are at all. I think maybe that's the most reassuring thing about, in spite of all of the Bucks ups and downs and everything that's kind of comes to pass in the season up until this point. You can look the whole way through. I mean, Celtics and the Cavs, you're right. They are they are different beasts. And I think there are teams that the books likely won't have to worry about until further down the line. And to get to the point where you're worrying about them, everything else has gone well and you've had your best season in a long, long time. Outside of that, none of those teams really should be feared. I mean, the Wizards are an interesting matchup, but they're inconsistent this year, even outside of Wall's injuries. And they've had their own problems. The Raptors are probably the best of the bunch, and the books already know they got to look at the Raptors last year. And no, they kind of have the measure of that team in some ways. Toronto was able to adjust and find a way to win through that series, but if they didn't have home court advantage, how would that change? 
or even just very simply when they also have to face off against Eric Bledsoe and hopefully, possibly, probably Jabari Parker on the other end of the court, you know, that's just knocked out, just knocked on wood. Right. That's a massive, massive difference when you come to that time of year. 76ers and the, the Pistons, I think are the Pistons look steady. Pistons will probably hang around. Um, Stan Van Gundy as a coach will know how to manage that team. They're not doing it on anything that seems unsustainable from any one player. I mean, the one person you could possibly make that argument for is Tobias Harris, but he's not really showing any significant signs of slowing down that you'd feel like that's just about to burst at any time. Sixers are the wild card. They're interesting because, I mean, they have a player in Embiid who is incredibly talented, one of the most dominant players in the NBA at his best. But the question is the same for them now as it was at the start of the year. We're 22 games into an 82-game season for them. How often are they going to have everyone healthy? Is Embiid going to be healthy all season? Is Ben Simmons going to be healthy all season? What would the impact of losing kind of a reliable veteran like J.J. Redick for any period of time be on that team? Or even that's a team that's just been bad for a long time. They are going to hit a spell of adversity like every team does over the course of this year, even if it's not with injuries, just through kind of a drop in form. How will they deal with that? They're a super young team. So Sixers are interesting in terms of their wildcard ranking among the Eastern teams. Even then, when you come to the Celtics and Cavaliers, though, the Bucs have to see a Celtics team that they match up well with. They can't feel like they're clearly inferior in terms of talent. Who knows what could happen over a series? They've got to look at the Cavs, and you go, okay, the Cavs have LeBron. We've seen, at times, Bucs have had good games against the Cavs, and they've had really bad games where Cleveland rips them limb from limb. That roster and those players have... Real potential, though, to kind of fall off again and struggle later in the season. They're they're hitting the kind of stride they would have hoped for later in the year at this point, and you just wonder if they'll run out of gas again, particularly with the age of that team. Like, having to kind of play hard early in the season to dig themselves out of the hole they found themselves in, that's not really ideal for a team who, you know, have a lot of miles on the clock and are going to be hard-pushed considering consistent runs for LeBron year after year after year going into June to kind of make it at the top level to that point. It's going to be very interesting to watch how it plays out, but I think, you know, the books are well-placed in that good run, and they're right in the mix. If they can just stay consistent throughout the year, they should be right there. If not, three or four, you know, five or six, and that's okay, because they they will have a talent advantage in any matchup, three through six. I think that's the reality of it with Bledsoe, in tow as well now they don't have to worry about playing teams with better players they should have a really good chance if they can keep things going to get themselves in a position where winning a series is realistic who knows beyond that jordan tresky is not with us this week as i mentioned to start off but that doesn't mean that we are going to ignore jordan's favorite part of every episode his favorite elements i think to keep track of throughout the week let's get down to the really important business we're both professionals that I can force this information out of you, but I'm running out of time. Okay, so it was a great week for the books in terms of their performance overall. A little bit more challenging in terms of forcing 24-second violations. The Jack Bauer count might have been a pretty drab, disappointing affair, if not for two Jack Bowers forced against Sacramento Kings on Saturday night. As a result... The books are staying kind of on their pace, not on my 100 Jack Bauer pace, but they are up to 23 Jack Bowers in 21 games. Do we celebrate the next one? Is that like the golden Jack Bauer? Oh, I didn't think of that. Yeah, that's well, that's going to be 24-24. You know, the Jack Bauer to Jack Bauer, I think, would be the way. I really I hadn't considered that. That's, that's important, Ty. I'm glad you brought that to my attention. So yeah. Well, and whoa, wait a minute now. If it takes them a little while, it could be in the twenty-fourth game of the year too. That would mess up your pacing for a hundred in a big way. But if the twenty-fourth Jack Bauer comes in the twenty-fourth <laughs> game of the year, that's ridiculous. Well, that's that's an interesting proposition you've just set up for us. That's something to and watch if, out. If for. it's if it's the first possession of the third quarter, it would be in the twenty-fourth minute of the game too. That that would be on Friday night against the Dallas Mavericks, I think, would be when that possibility would come into play. So if the Bucs don't force 
24 second violations in our next two games. That is one to watch out for. Well, well spotted tie. The one thing I would say that limits the chances of that is friend of Jack Bauer fans everywhere, Reggie Jackson faces oh, off against the Bucks on Wednesday. Reggie Jackson, I think Jordan would have to confirm this he's next time, but so far is responsible for more Jack Bowers than any other player this year. So chance to add some more before that 24th game. But hey, if all goes wrong, I mean, at least we get that 24, 24, 24. Potential. Yeah, possibility. That's that's big time. All right. Let's move it on to the week ahead. Look at those games, which may include a lot more on top of Jack Bowers. Big week for the books. Four games, three of them coming at home, and two of them coming against pretty major rivals in the conference. Start off on Monday night, where they will head to TD Garden to face off with the Boston Celtics. 6.30 p.m. Central start, game on NBA TV. If I'm remembering correctly, I think this is the third game between the teams this year. Right, it is. And they are one-on-one so far. Bucks won the opener, and the Celtics won the Mecca game. What is your feeling going into this one, Ty? I'm excited. I like watching the Bucks get to match up with a team like the Celtics. I think, you know, like you said, sometimes the like t- like sometimes the Cavs just tear Milwaukee apart. Usually, it ends up being entirely dependent on how Kevin Love does. Um, the Celtics are a good matchup. They're a quote unquote the best team in the NBA if you only look at record. So I cannot wait. I think they match up with the Bucks well, and the Bucks match up with them well which usually makes the games better than, than just a blowout one way or the other. I believe the Bucks will come out on top, though, by five points against Boston. Five points. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the Bucks. I do like the matchup overall, but I, I think it could be really, really close. I have a tough time seeing the Bucks kind of having a, a lead that they're going to kind of hold professionally and in a composed fashion to get over the line. I'm going to go Bucks by one. Uh, I think the only reason I have that degree of trepidation with this matchup is just how well Al Horford did guarding Giannis last time. He's one of the best equipped players in the NBA to limit Giannis' impact because not only does he have the kind of size that's necessary not to be just out-muscled by Giannis instantly, he's also really, really quick moving backwards, moving laterally. He's an agile, attentive defender. He did a great job in the Mecca game. That's that's how the Celtics got so much joy in that one. It's going to be interesting to see if Horford can keep that up, if Giannis has made adjustments and will kind of get around that. I mean, otherwise, I think, like, Kyrie doesn't worry me as much as he would at other times in the past because Eric Bledsoe is there. Should be able to give him something to think about on the other end. Should be able to at least disrupt him and kind of make him work for his points on offense. Outside of Horford, Giannis has a big advantage over the rest of Boston's big men. So there's potential for something good to happen. I think it'll be a close game, though. Moving on from that, back home on Wednesday, Stan Van Gundy's Detroit Pistons will be the visitors to Milwaukee. Another big conference rival and another series that is tied at 1-1 so far. So these both of these games, who knows? They could end up kind of important for tie-break things later in the year. These aren't insignificant when you're playing conference rivals and series that are pretty evenly poised. Even at this early juncture, it could matter. What is your prediction for the game of the Pistons? Bucks coming off a big win against the NBA-leading Boston Celtics. Return home in a game with a team who clearly doesn't have the top-end talent they do. Pretty obvious that they're going to lose by six points in a game where everyone goes, why? Why does this keep happening? How do, how do they lose these? And like people who don't watch basketball that much ask us, and, and we're just like, I, I, I don't really know. I mean, they probably should have won that game, but it's, it's hard to tell. Um, so yeah, I, I think this is going to be the one where that's like, they just inexplicably lose and everyone's like, oh yeah, that's right. They, they're very inconsistent. I, I think they'll win this one. I, I think they'll take care of business in both of those games. Um, it will be close. It'll be hard fought because the Pistons aren't really the kind of team you're going to blow out or they're going to blow you out. They're just very solid. They're going to be there and kind of make you beat them. But I think the books have what it takes to, to do that. I'm going to go books by seven. I think they can they can take advantage of this. The key will obviously be 
just keeping a handle on Andre Drummond and more importantly, not getting into foul trouble because that would bring up some of the center depth concerns we talked about earlier. First game between these teams, both Henson and Ton got in foul trouble. Yanis then followed as he had to play in center. They can't afford to do that. Friday, the return game of a previous loss from earlier in the season that we'd all like to forget, the Dallas Mavericks visit Milwaukee. Do you see it going differently this time? Do you see the books not getting blown out by the Mavs? I think it's time for an old-fashioned revenge game. Like I alluded to earlier, the Mavs are such in a weird, such a weird place right now. Um, and I just think that I think they've had a couple of recent performances where they looked real fun and, and everything, but I think that the Bucks are going to win by eight and at one point have a bigger lead and then totally blow it while like Rashad Vaughn or someone's on the floor just completely randomly. A bit like a bit like the Kings game with Jeff probably staying on the floor a little bit too yeah, long and all of a sudden. Like that. Um I I don't quite see it. I don't see it as a comfortable game anyway. I think Rick Carlisle is too good of a coach that this will be somewhat closer than it should be. He clearly has figured a lot out about the books, a lot out about his former player, Jason Kidd. I'm going to go books by six. I think they will win. They're obviously the better team of the two, but it's not necessarily going to be all that easy because of the difference in coaching between the two teams. The following night, second game of a back-to-back, the Bucks will also face a team who gave them a pretty disappointing, demoralizing loss on the road earlier in the season that is the utah jazz what is your prediction for the game that closed out the week against quinn snyder's team revenge game part two the bucks will somehow find a way to not completely forget the fact that the nba court does extend into the corner three area that the jazz torched them on the last time these two teams played Riding high off that win against the Mavericks, that wasn't as convincing as it should be. The Bucks are going to come back again and beat the most likely Rudy Gobert list Jazz, thanks to Ricky Rubio not being able to shoot, which helps Milwaukee. Even the last time the Jazz torched them from three, anyway, I will say Bucks by mm, seven in this game. I'm going to go Jazz by seven. Well, you you couldn't have the Bucks go four zero in a week. That's not that's not happening. That's that is important. Right I yeah. definitely couldn't do that. Also, I just think the Jazz have the Bucks number. I think they play a style which is going to limit what the Bucks can do and cause some problems at the same time, particularly with Gobert out because they, they play more of a motion offense without him and they shoot more three-pointers. And Quinn Snyder is just a really, really good coach. So Shout out to uh, the guy I really wish the Bucks would have found a way to get this summer, Epe Udo, who's probably going to be starting for Utah. Former book club magnet in Milwaukee, Epe Udo. Oh, they're starting a lot of Derek Favors at center. I thought they did that oh, too, yeah, but yeah, yeah. even even still off the bench, that's the kind of reliable backup center that maybe the books are missing right now. Okay, so that does it for us for this episode. This is the second time we had to record this. I'll let you all in on the kind of the the Two making time. the making of is, is I can't think of this ever happening before. We've had various technical problems over the 166 run, 166 episode run of Win Six Podcast. Can't think of this happening before. Ty and I recorded this podcast. It failed to record, and we instantly had to go again. That's probably what I get for making a joke at the end of the recording that was never recorded. That you know everyone has had enough of listening to Ty. We can now <laughs> go without Ty for six months. My punishment for that was I had to go straight back and record the same podcast again, back to back with the same Mr. Windish. I'll cut him some slack as a result because he was very gracious to oblige in that. So thank you, Ty, for filling in for Jordan, for bringing all of your insight and for doing it twice. <laughs> Listen, I'm just happy I got an extra hour of talking basketball with you, Adam. That's all I ever want to do with my with my spare time anyway. Uh, it's always an honor to return to the Winning Six show. My podcast come up my my old stomping grounds it's always nice to come back home and uh get get properly ridiculed which doesn't happen enough on my own podcast yeah he's much he's much nicer on air than he is off trust me everyone okay <laughs> so we will be back later in the week um most likely hopefully jordan will be here on friday we'll be taking your questions from thursday for our regular mailbag pod which will also include plenty of wisconsin herd talks and books talk too until then Check out all of our writing at BehindTheBookPass.com. 
Ty, where can people find you right now? Uh, at Ty Windish is where you find all my stuff. Obviously, I'm still around behind the buck pass for uh, you know something here or there to share my thoughts on the team. Otherwise, I like to do general NBA stuff at the step back and doing a LeBron NBA thing that should be up pretty soon, hopefully. Uh, and then also, of course, my podcast, Time Out with Ty. Uh, check that out everywhere you find podcasts or just Google it. Or like I said, go to my Twitter. Uh, it's been a little quiet for a while, but I recently remembered how much fun I have doing these podcasts. So I think it's looking like a two-episode week. You can get your Pistons thoughts and your Pacers thought this thoughts this week. Uh, longtime listeners of my show will know probably what those what that means for guests, but I'm not going to divulge that yet. But uh, tune in, come by, take a listen. It's usually a nice 30 to 45-minute jaunt around the NBA and wherever else we end up. All right, go check all that out, everyone. And again, subscribe to Snight Tunes. Follow the SoundCloud. Add us on Stitcher. Favorites and tune in radio. We'll be back with you very, very soon. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Ty. Thank you, Adam. <laughs>